guys, uh, it's Kayla back with another video. Okay, um, so first things first is um, I haven't been getting like a lot of views or whatever on my videos, so if you guys could share like with your friends and stuff, I would really, really appreciate it. Uh, okay, so the topic of today's video is being yourself. And it's like, you know, well, aren't I always being myself? Uh, and like, yeah, for sure. Um, but, uh, sorry, I, sorry, I'm, I'm reading these off paper. <laughs> um, okay. But it's like, being yourself is like, not changing yourself to impress someone else. You know, cause like, um, like, uh, you could be the most popular kid at school or like, you know, like, um, have like the hottest boyfriend or whatever. Um, but like, what's the point if you're not being yourself? And it's like, being yourself can be hard and like the hard part about being yourself is that it's not always easy because you know like people can like um like make fun of you or something dumb because like people suck and evil people exist um but you just gotta ignore them and like not care what they're saying um uh, and like for instance like you know a lot of people like call me quiet or shy or whatever um, but I'm not quiet, like, I, you know, I don't talk a lot at school, but, um, I just, it's not like I'm scared to not talk, I just don't want to, but if, like, people actually, you know, like, be my friend, or, like, you know, talk to me and stuff, they'd find out that I'm, like, really funny and cool and talkative, and, yeah, I'm just, I'm not, like, quiet, I just choose not to talk a lot at school, like other people, you know? Um, okay, so, yeah, uh, I hope to, um, basically, you know, like, be yourself and don't care about, like, whatever, pe uh, what other people think about you, and just, like, you know, ignore them if they're being mean to you about it, and everything will work out if you're just being yourself. Uh, okay, uh, thank you guys for watching this video, I hope some of you guys found it helpful, um, and make sure to subscribe to my channel, <laughs> um, and yeah, thank you for watching, Gucci! Hey everybody, welcome to Hope. Uh, my name is Scott Raines, I'm one of the pastors here. That was the opening scene of a movie called Eighth Grade. It centers around this girl, Kayla, coming to the end of her eighth grade year, uh, getting ready for the summer before she begins high school. Uh, if you are parents of teenagers, uh, if you're going to be parents of teenagers, if you know people who are parents of teenagers, if you used to be a teenager, I would highly recommend this film. I'll, I'll just be you know, as honest with you as I can be. There are parts of this film that are very difficult to watch. Uh, there's all sorts of realities in life that as parents, we, we hope we can shield our kids from these kinds of things and that they would never have to experience these kinds of things. But uh, this movie just kind of addresses them head on, tackles them uh, head on. So I, I think it's really a film for adults, for parents to consider how uncomfortable are we willing to get uh, to make sure that we're helping the young generation navigate these troubling realities that they face in their life? And, and are we willing to get uncomfortable to help them navigate it in a faithful kind of way? 
So we're in the middle of a message series at Hope. We're looking at Hope's 10 for 10 vision, 10 big goals that uh, we believe God has given us, who God wants us to be, what God wants us to do over this decade of ministry. If you are a member of Hope, if you consider this your church home, I would ask you to please be prayerfully reading through Hope's 10 for 10 vision. You can get hard copies around the church. You can go online uh, and you can access it digitally. But I want you to be prayerfully uh, reading through these because God has gifted you. God has given you abilities and skills and a heart for certain things. And God is probably calling you to help us bring some of these goals uh, to reality. So what does that look like for you? How, how do you get involved? How do you get down uh, out of the grandstands and onto the field to participate fully in the life of the church. Today we're going to be looking at goal number six, but before we look at goal number six, just really quickly, goal number seven is to move people around the Hope Circle. And the Hope Circle is just a discipleship pathway that we have at our church. Uh, people come to faith as seekers, and then at some point after they've been seeking answers to their questions, they come to a place where they are believers, they start following Jesus, ultimately you end at a place of servant leadership. That's the discipleship pathway at Hope. And as we look at this goal number six, I want you to imagine what would it look like to have a church filled with servant leaders who are thinking about what does it look like for us to be a church that is intergenerational. Everybody say that phrase with me, intergenerational. Each of the goals has a title, and then there's an activity connected to it. So the activity of an intergenerational church is to compete for the hearts of new generations of believers. Everybody say compete. compete. I want to dig into this idea of competition a little bit today. Uh, I've been in this community for a little over 17 years. In, in my opinion, uh, co competition is one of the idols that we have in our community. Most things in life can be healthy or unhealthy depending on your perspective, and competition is the same way. Go back to the very beginning of scriptures. God uh, creates the heavens and the earth. God creates human beings, and God places the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden. Everything is perfect. Everything is exactly the way that God intends it to be, and even in that paradise, God sets up some boundaries. Uh, God says, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree. Whoop. There you go, in the garden, except of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So all kinds of freedom that God gives to human beings. God wants us to be free to enjoy life. And at the same time, if we're going to be free to enjoy life, God says there are some boundaries. Uh, there's a play box that I want you to play in. Eat all of the fruit of every tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You turn the page to chapter 3, and here comes the serpent, the devil, who begins to tempt Adam and Eve to do what God has asked them not to do. And Eve says, we can't eat that fruit because God says, if we eat it, we will die. The devil basically laughs at her. The devil says, you're not going to die. You, you want to know the real reason God doesn't want you to eat the forbidden fruit? This is Genesis 3 verse 5. Let's read this out loud together. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God. Part of what I see the devil doing here the devil is setting up a competition between God and humanity. Who, who gets to run your life? Who gets to rule your life? And the devil's like, God wants to do that, but you can beat God. You can be God if you just eat the fruit that God has asked you not to eat. It's almost like uh, the devil's making God look like nervous or jealous or afraid that human beings are going to beat God or be better at being God than God is. 
So this phrase, be like God, when it's coming from the devil, is a temptation that we want to avoid. Don't be like God. But in other places in Scripture, the wisdom of Scripture is to be like God. And we talked about this just a couple of weeks ago. We were looking at this word uh, that Paul uses. We get the word metamorphosis from this word he uses in the New Testament. It's the idea of transformation into Christ-likeness, that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, changing us so that more and more all the time we become people who love the way Jesus loves. We are being conformed into the image of God's Son. The idea is... uh, We want to grow, we want to mature in our faith so that more and more all the time we can be like God. Here's the way Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. It's on the screen. Read this one out loud with me. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. Imitate God. Be like God. The wisdom of Scripture says this is a good thing. But when it's coming from the devil, be like God is an unhealthy thing, a not-so-good thing. It all depends on your perspective. Similar reality when it comes to competition. There's a healthy competition and an unhealthy competition. There's a way to compete that honors God. There's a way to compete that does not honor God, is sinful, ends up hurting people. What does unhealthy competition look like? On Wednesday night, I was teaching at Power Life, our ministry to middle school and high school students. And I got done uh, teaching that, and I went home, and we got our seventh grade daughter, uh, Saffron, uh, went through the bedtime routine, And then I was able to watch some college basketball. Northwestern was playing Purdue, Purdue's the second-ranked team in the nation, and Northwestern was playing great. They took Purdue into overtime, and towards the end of overtime, Northwestern's behind by three points. They need a stop. Uh, They get a trap in the corner. The Purdue player tries to dribble around the trap, and they call Northwestern for a foul, a questionable foul. Could have been a no call. But when they called the foul, it basically meant the game was over, and the coach for Northwestern went ballistic, charged onto the court, got in the face of the referee, pointing and spitting and yelling, and he gets technical fouls and he gets kicked out of the game. He's a coach who is easy to like. Northwestern's not very good at basketball historically. This year, they're competing for an opportunity to make it into March Madness, and this was a a real big, real important game. In this moment, this good guy, he bites the forbidden fruit. Unhealthy competition. Something similar happened in women's college basketball a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) I know. Uh, Some coaches are easy to like and some are not. But remember, (laughs) God calls us to love all people. And and the great thing about this particular coach, when she was coaching Baylor, Iowa State fans didn't like her. And then she's coaching LSU, Iowa fans don't like her. So look, what a unifying force she is. (laughs) There's a call that she doesn't like, and she charges onto the court. Her assistant coaches, her players are having to hold her back. Unhealthy competition. And I have to be honest, it saddens me a little bit to say this. The teams that I cheer for, the players I cheer for, do this. They're tempted in the same way. Uh, A couple weeks ago, a month ago, I don't remember how long ago it was, middle of the NFL season, and the Chiefs were terrible. The Chiefs were awful, and everybody's saying there's no way the Chiefs are going to make the Super Bowl. Chiefs made the Super Bowl. Did you get everybody? They're playing in the Super Bowl next. Anyway, there was a time when it wasn't looking like that was going to be the end of the season. They were playing the Buffalo Bills, and they were behind. The Chiefs were behind with two less than two minutes to go, 
and they had this incredible play where the quarterback threw it to the tight end, and the tight end ran for the first down, but instead of getting tackled, he threw it to the wide receiver, who then ran in for a touchdown, one of the most incredible plays you'll ever want to see, except there was a flag because the wide receiver lined up offsides. And so it didn't count. They had to do it over. The Chiefs did not score. The Chiefs lost, and my quarterback went ballistic. And he had to be restrained, so he didn't do something a little more foolish. Now, I'm guessing some of you in the room are kind of rolling your eyes. You're like, come on, Pastor Scott, you're such an idealist. This is sports. This is the culture of sports. It doesn't matter. People have been yelling at refs forever and ever. Refs can take it. That's why they sign up for it. They like to be yelled at. No, they don't. Talk to school administrators about how difficult it is to find referees this day, these days because nobody wants to be berated and treated in such a shameful kind of way. I listen to a lot of sports talk radio, and one of the um, topics that sports talk radio hosts are bringing up more and more regularly all the time, they, they're upset. They think we need to do away with the handshake line at the end of a game because we've got athletes who are competing for hours, couple hours on the court, three hours on, on the field, however long the game goes, and they're trying to win, and they're trying to beat the opponent, they're trying to beat the enemy, they're given blood, sweat, and tears, everything they got to win the game, and then the buzzer sounds, and all of a sudden, you're supposed to walk through the handshake line and say, good job, and show civility and sportsmanship. We can't expect competitors to do that. Really? We can't? After you play a game to show a little civility and sportsmanship? Now, I suppose if you're not serious about following Jesus, you can do whatever you want. You get to be God of your life. But if God gets to be God, if Jesus gets to be Lord, if you're serious about being an imitator of God in everything you do, then competition will look different for you as a follower of Jesus than it might look for the rest of the world. If you want to know one key word that helps us understand the difference between healthy competition and unhealthy competition, I would suggest that word is shame. Again, go back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden. Chapter 2 of the book of Genesis is the description of paradise. Life when it's exactly the way it's supposed to be. Life when everything's going the way God wants it to go. And this is the last line of chapter 2. This is the way the biblical writer describes life when life is as good as it can possibly be. I want you to read this out loud with me. Now the man and his wife were both naked but felt no shame. The very best kind of life, according to scripture, is life when there's no shame. Again, you turn the page to chapter 3, here comes the devil, temptation, forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve disobey God, and guess what happens immediately? Let's read this verse. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame. Unhealthy competition leads to shame. And I'm not just talking about sports. My wife and I have six kids for several years, I think pretty close to a decade, uh, we homeschooled our kids. So we're in these homeschool circles, these homeschool groups, very competitive. You want to know what we were competing for in those homeschool groups? Who are the best parents? And you know how you measured who the best parents were? Whose kids were most well-behaved? Whose kids were most obedient? You want to talk about a culture that is shame-producing? That'll get you heaps of shame on kids in a hurry. So it's parenting, 
As we're competing in, in parenting, it's in the marketplace, in the business world, as you're competing, it's academics, it's sports, it's music. Unhealthy competition leads to shame, and for decades now, research has been telling us, shame has really damaging impact on brain health. Research, again, for decades, has been telling us. Shame in children and adolescents is linked to anxiety, depression, eating disorders, and delinquent behavior. One of the best parts and most difficult parts of this movie, Eighth Grade, to watch is they are heartbreakingly honest as they show Kayla battling shame. She's got this YouTube channel <laughs> begging for likes and subscriptions. Nobody's watching it. Uh, and it's called Kayla's Corner, and it's got these cute little pep talk two-minute videos on being yourself or putting yourself out there or growing up. But it's really a pep talk to herself. Early on in the film, she gets invited to a pool party. It's kind of the end of the year, beginning of summer pool party. She is so excited to go, and she is terrified to go. Her dad drops her off. She goes in. Uh, there's a room where they change into their swimsuit, and uh, they show her just kind of having a panic attack as she thinks about putting on a swimsuit and then being seen in that swimsuit by her peers. But with tremendous courage and equally tremendous awkwardness, she makes her way into the pool. Take a look. all the way across the pool underwater. Cool. Yeah, you know, I could have went further if I wanted to, but whatever. Want to see me do a handstand? Uh. Yeah, too many people in the pool, you know, I can't do it for long if the water isn't still. I'm Gabe. What's your name? Uh, I'm Kayla. Okay, yeah, cool. I'm gonna try again. Water is not calm enough. Yeah. So, uh, how do you know Kennedy? 
Oh, we go to school together. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's cool. She's my cousin. You want to do a breath holding contest? Yeah, sure. Okay. One, two, three. Victory. Uh, by the end of the movie, you absolutely fall in love with Gabe. We'll, we'll get back to him in a little bit. What I love about Gabe is he just shows up. Uh, this is who I am, take it or leave it. He's not playing any social games that you might play in middle school. And his freedom to be himself, it catches Kayla a little off guard. She doesn't quite know what to do with it. At Hope, we like to say, come as you are. And one of the reasons we like to say come as you are is because we understand very few people actually have the freedom that Gabe feels to be themselves, to come as they are. Because very few people actually trust, actually believe that they are loved just as they are. Let's dig into this uh, goal a little bit more to be an intergenerational church. Here are the, some of the details around this. We want to compete for the hearts of new generations of believers by developing highly creative, fully functional, grace-based, disciple-making ministries that will proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of these details are important. All of these details uh, matter, and one of them might stick out to you more than others. For today, the one I want to focus in on is the idea of grace-based. What does it mean to have grace-based ministries, particularly for new generations of believers? I started off in ministry, I was the student ministry guy, so I was in charge of uh, ministry to middle school and high school students and their families. When I started at that church, I was 23 years old, and when I was 26, I left that church to go to seminary, so I was still kind of figuring things out when I was uh, doing that job. One of the summers that I was there, we took a group of 16 high school students and four chaperones on a whitewater rafting trip in Colorado and Utah. And I know what some of you are thinking, that sounds pretty outdoorsy for an indoorsy pastor. And it was, uh, but I did it because they were paying me to do it. Um, we loaded up the bus, we had like a 25-passenger church bus, and we headed west. A couple hours into the trip, one of the students at the back of the bus pulled out a magazine. I don't remember if it was a Cosmopolitan magazine or a Red Book. I'm pretty sure it was Red Book. And in, in this particular magazine, it had a survey, a questionnaire around sexual behavior. And so the students in the back of the bus were kind of going through that. Uh, it was a small enough bus, and they were loud enough as they were talking about it that the adults at the front of the bus could hear it, uh, the conversation pretty clearly. And I could feel the stares of the other adult chaperones on me like, staff person, you better do something about this. And I'm thinking, I'm 24, you're actually their parents, you go do something about it. <laughs> but because they were paying me, I went back. So I, I said, hey, how about we put the magazines away for this church trip? They had a better idea. I love this. The student said, Scott, what if you just stay back here with us and we do these surveys, questionnaires together and we'll tell you what teenagers think and you tell us what the Bible might have to say, what God might think, what, what would Jesus do? So for the next hour, <laughs> I going across Nebraska, we're talking with these students, and it was such a good conversation. 
And I remember thinking, like, this is why I got into ministry to begin with, to have these kinds of conversations and to make these kinds of connections. I thought it was so great. We, we wrapped the conversation up. I'm ready to go to the front of the bus and get pats on the back from all the, you know, parents who are like, thank you for doing that for um, But before I could get to the front, one of the high school boys grabbed me and said, hey, Scott, what if it's too late? What if I've already crossed some of the boundaries that, you know, God says don't cross? Then what? And I could hear the shame in his voice. I could see the shame on his face. And then I suddenly kind of felt some shame because I realized I had missed the opportunity. That when, when you're competing for the hearts of a new generation of believers, the starting place has to be grace. The, the finishing place has to be grace. And it has to be grace-based all the way through we start talking about this idea of being grace-based, I think sometimes people think, well, to to have grace-based ministries, that basically means you just let everything go. Uh, The the boundaries don't really matter. If you cross boundaries, if you sin, um, if you choose to go your way rather than God's way, no big deal. Grace to you, grace to you, grace to you. That's not grace-based. I'll try to explain as best I can what a grace-based church, a grace-based ministry might look like, And, and the starting place is really important. Did you notice our Bible reading for today was from the book of Deuteronomy? Not very many people associate the book of Deuteronomy with grace, but it's in there. It's in there. The book of Deuteronomy, Moses, at the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, he gathers all the people of Israel together. They're about ready to cross the Jordan River and and enter into the promised land. Moses himself is about to die, and he gathers them together to remind them everything that they've done, everything God has done the last 40 years. One of the words that you see as Moses repeats this story of the last 40 years, you see the word obey repeated over and over and over. And again, this word obey, not too many of us connect obedience with grace. Because far too many of us, when we see the word obedience, what we're actually thinking about is compliance. And there's a major difference between obedience and compliance. I try to teach into this every couple of years or so. Today's the day. This reminder, there's a difference between obedience and compliance. Compliance is, I'm going to do what I've been told to do because I fear punishment. Obedience is, I'm going to be doing what I've been asked to do because I trust whoever's asking me to do it loves me, has my best interests in mind, wants the very best kind of life for me. When it comes to living a life of faith, far too many of us think, you know what God really wants is compliance, just do what we're told to do, or else great punishment is coming. But you don't see the word compliance in Scripture. You do see the word obedience over and over and over again. Compliance is about fear and punishment. Obedience is about love. Jesus will come on the scene, and Jesus will say, if you love me, obey my command." So part of what we see Moses doing in Deuteronomy is reminding the people of God's love. Remember, don't forget, but remember how God rescued you, delivered you from oppression in Egypt. Remember how God fed you when you were starving in the wilderness with uh, bread from heaven, manna from heaven. Remember the way God gave you water from a rock in, in a dry desert. God provided for your thirst. Remember how you wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and your clothes didn't wear out and your ankles didn't swell. That's actually in the Bible. Yay, God, our ankles didn't swell. 
Remember all these things that God has done for you. And Moses says, because if you forget it, you're going to enter the promised land and everything's going to go great for you. You're going to have success and wealth. You're going to achieve a great life. And you're going to think this great life that you're living is because of you and your work and your efforts when it's really a gift from God. Remember everything God's done for you, Moses says. And then he says, and remember why God has done this for you. It's really pretty simple. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8, it's on the screen, read it out loud with me. It was simply that the Lord loves you. Why did God do all this good stuff for you? Why did God bring all this good stuff about in your life? It's simply because God loves you. It is an undeserved gift. It is grace. Right in the middle of Deuteronomy, we're told that God has grace for us because God loves us. And if that's the starting place, believing in a God who loves us and has grace for us, then we can start talking about obedience. Because God has done all this stuff for you, be careful to obey all these commands. Because you trust in God's love and God's grace, show love to the Lord your God by walking in his ways and holding tightly to him. Commit yourselves wholeheartedly to the word of God. Talk about it when you get up. When you go to bed, when you're at home, when you're walking down the road, teach the stories of God's love and grace and faithfulness to your children because it will help you remember, but it will also cause your children to believe and to trust that if God can show love and grace in the past in in your life, then maybe God can show love and grace in my life as well. If we are going to be a grace-based church that's competing for the hearts of a new generation of believers, part of what we have to understand is there is a competition. There is a battle that's being waged for the hearts of our kids, and so much of what happens in this life fills us with shame. Our job as a church is to point people to a God who can fill them with grace. It's a battle, and we're not going to allow this world to continue to fill hearts with shame. Think about how many students, how many young people there are in this community. Walk in the halls of school or the streets of the town where you live or the halls of this church who are convinced they are somehow broken, irredeemable, unwanted, unworthy, that that they are somehow convinced that the world would be a better place if I wasn't around. And if we're being honest, It's not just children and students who have these kinds of thoughts. A marriage ends in divorce, and those kinds of thoughts start to permeate the hearts and the minds of the people who were part of that relationship coming to an end. You keep getting passed over, you keep getting overlooked for a promotion at work, and these thoughts start to permeate. Maybe there's just something wrong with me. Maybe I'm the problem. Kayla gets to this place kind of bouncing back and forth all through this movie. In one moment, it's like everything's fine. She's trying to convince her dad, you don't have to worry about me. My life is great. In the next minute, she's on her knees praying, begging, God, please, 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 I need tomorrow to be a good day. At one point in the film, it's coming to the end of their eighth grade year, and they give everybody a time capsule. When they started middle school, they got to build this time capsule, a shoebox full of stuff that represented their hopes and dreams for their middle school career. And as Kayla opens her shoebox and and looks at the contents and listens to what her younger self was saying, kind of cheering her on through high school, she gets filled with shame and she's thinking, life is not going the way I wanted it to go. 
Things aren't turning out the way that I had hoped they would turn out. She goes home and she asks her dad, can we build a fire in the backyard and burn this time capsule? He's a single father. He's just trying to stay connected to his daughter. He doesn't know if this is a good thing or not. He's not sure where this is coming from, but he says, okay. They build a fire. They're sitting around the fire watching her time capsule of her hopes and dreams burn up. And she says to him, Dad, do I make you sad? And, and he's, where's this question coming from? Why would you ask? Why would you think that? And she says, oh, I was just thinking. When I grow up, if I become a mom and I have a daughter like me, it might make me sad. And in that moment, he sees the shame in her posture. He hears the shame in her voice, and he knows, I need to pour grace into my daughter. Take a look. When mom left, I was really scared. I was really, really scared. I, I was scared you were going to be okay. And then you started to get older. And you got, I don't know, you took your first steps and you said your first words and you made your first friend. All the things I thought I was going to have to uh, teach you. How to be nice, how to... Uh, share, how to care about other people's feelings. You just started doing that on your own. You know, your teachers would always say to me, you've got such a lovely daughter. You've done such a great job with her. But I didn't do anything. I really didn't. I really didn't. I just watched you. And the more I watched you, the, the less scared I got. Does that make sense? I stopped being scared about whether you were going to be okay a long time ago. Do you know why? Because of you. You made me brave. And if you could just see yourself how I see you, which is how you are, how you really are, how you always have been, I swear to God, you wouldn't be scared either. primary ways the New Testament writers talk about faith, who God is, what's God up to through Jesus is through this language of the family of God. That's a scene where a biological father is pouring love and grace and hope into his biological daughter. What the New Testament writers tell us is God has adopted us as his own children. So you are children of your heavenly father which means you're sitting next to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and for some of you, you come from families that put the fun in dysfunctional. You're not sure you want to be a part of a church family. Um, if we could learn to see each other the way God sees us and help each other see each other the way God sees us, we could create a sense of belonging and community and love here that would help us relate to one another in healthier and healthier ways as the family of God. And part of what that means is even if you don't have kids in Hope Kids, some of you might 
choose to volunteer in Hope Kids because you understand what a vitally important ministry that is in the life of this church family. Same is true for Power Life and Ignition, our uh, ministry to middle school and high school students. Ignition meets on Wednesday nights at, at 7.30, and they play a game, and they uh, sing some songs, have some worship, listen to a talk, and get into small groups. And a couple of weeks ago, one of the small groups of uh, high school boys, the conversation in their small group was so good, was so rich, was, was so helpful. They were asking such good questions. The small group kept going and going and going. It was after 10 o'clock that they finally went home because there are people, adults in this church who care about a new generation coming to faith in Jesus Christ. What, what might it mean for you? How might God be calling you to be a part of that kind of ministry, that kind of mission? What, what would change about the, your participation in the life of this church if you actually believe? Like, uh, confirmation weekend is always the first weekend of May. We confirm hundreds of eighth grade students around all of Hope's campuses. What if you like, viewed those eighth graders as your family? And instead of thinking, oh, maybe the church is going to be crowded, maybe somebody's going to be sitting where I normally sit, I think I'll just catch the you know, sermon video later in the week. What if you came and you cheered on those eighth graders? Because it's really unbelievable that an eighth grader in our world, in our culture, would confess their faith in Jesus Christ. That, that we can help them experience the kind of love and, and hope and life that God has for them. This is, this is what ends up happening uh, for Kayla. Remember Gabe, the guy who wins the holding your breath contest in the pool? He gets her number, he, he texts her, and he invites her to come over to his house in the summer to just hang out. And he's got a meal prepared for her. Take a look. Would you like to uh, take a seat? Oh, uh, sure. Cool. You, uh, you like chicken nuggets, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. I got a 20-piece, and I also got two of every kind of sauce. But, you know, if you have a favorite sauce and want, want the one packet of it, you can have mine. I like all the sauces equally. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, and the nuggets have been sitting out for a little bit because, you know, I didn't know when you'd be here. So just, uh, you know, tell me if they're too cold and I can heat them up in the microwave over there, okay? Okay. Yeah. Oh, whoops, sorry. I left this out by accident. Sorry, it's so stupid. Uh, no problem. You want to see it? No, wait, no, it's stupid. Sure. Okay, yeah. Cool. What is it? Oh, well, I go to archery camp every summer, and last summer I got five bullseyes in a day, so, you know, they gave me the Sharpshooter of the Week award. That's actually really cool. Eh, not really. It's, it's stupid. Um, I think it's really cool, but, yeah. Nah, well, I think it's stupid. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, to our uh, first friend hangout, I guess. Yeah. 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 Oops. Do you believe in God? Um, yes. Okay, cool. <clears throat> um, you like the silverware? Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, it's a uh, lightsaber. Let's check it out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've uh, 
I've seen some of your videos. Oh, those are really dumb. No, 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 no. They're, they're actually really cool. I, I love those videos. Um, <laughs> you're, really, you're really smart about stuff. Like, you know a lot of things. Thanks. I was thinking you should maybe, you can maybe have like your own talk show or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Am I being weird at all to you? Like, uh, no, no, no. Yeah, I'm, okay, good. You, I'm you're just, fine. I'm just nervous, yeah. No, 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 it's fine. Um, I am too. Yeah. yeah. Um, am I being like quiet or oh, too no like, way. okay. Am you're, I like talking pretty, enough? You've been pretty talkative, but not in like okay. an annoying way. Just uh, <laughs> just responding to me, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. This is uh this is a good conversation, don't you think? Yeah, we're doing some good talking. Yeah, it's a nice chat. Yeah. You know what would go great with this? Hmm. Some chinesse sauce. You like Rick and yes. Morty too? Yes. 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 Nice. Yes. Yes, Morty. Chinesse sauce. Morty. We got it. We got to get. The, we got to get it, Morty. Come on, Morty. Come on. Oh, no, geez, Jerry, Rick, shut up. Morty, yes. Rick, I don't know. <laughs> yes, That's yes, so cool. Morty. Keep, keep doing the voice, Morty. Yes, of course. <laughs> that show's amazing. Yeah. Mm. You are awesome. You're amazing. <laughs> Thanks. You're no problem. The great thing about being an intergenerational church is the way the young generation can teach us. Husbands in the room, you should probably ask your wife on occasion, are we having a good talk here? And she will say, no, we're not. I think we could actually do better. And that would be a good way for you to grow. I, I love how vulnerable they are. I'm nervous. Like, let's just get it out there. Prepares a meal for her so that he can tell her, I think you're awesome. What if that's what this is? A meal your Heavenly Father prepares for you to let you know God thinks you're awesome. You're worthy of love and grace. <laughs>